This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where a bill making it harder to amend the state constitution has cleared the Rules Committee and is headed for the Senate floor. The House has approved a bill to keep sex offenders who victimize children from being released from jail while they appeal their case. A bill to crack down on indecent exposure clears the Rules Committee and is ready for the Senate floor. They also advanced a bill allowing college athletes to cash in on their fame without losing their scholarships. A House Budget Committee takes a see-no-evil, hear-no-evil approach to discrimination against LGBTQ students at private schools receiving state money. On today's Sunrise interview, we talk with Rich Templin at the AFL-CIO. He's one of the outspoken opponents of bills that would make it harder to put a citizen's amendment on the ballot and to allow more secrecy when universities search for a new president. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and an all-female version of Florida Man. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, February 27th. The Rules Committee in the State Senate approves a bill making it much harder for people to place a constitutional amendment on the ballot. These citizen initiatives give people a chance to bypass state lawmakers and take their issue directly to voters. And frankly, the people who run the legislature, they hate that. So do the well-funded special interest groups who spend big money on politicians but can't afford to buy off the entire electorate. Citizen initiatives are the reason we have a higher minimum wage than the feds, a cap on the number of kids in school classrooms medical marijuana, and why voting rights for former felons were restored after they complete their sentences. Rich Templin with the Florida AFL-CIO says the legislature has spent years systematically chipping away at these citizen initiatives. In 2004, we shortened the time period for the campaigns. We added a fiscal uh, impact statement only on citizens' initiative. In 2005, we raised the threshold to 60%. We shortened the lifespan of signatures, the ability to close uh, uh, FEIC meetings. In 2007, we put a new position revocation uh, process in place. We made a 30-day requirement on signature verification. We closed traditionally public-private spaces where people could even gather signatures. In 2008, no bundling of provisions. In 2011, we cut the validity of signatures again. That validity time has now gone from eight years to four years to two years. This bill makes it just over a year. In 2019, you passed a major uh, change to this system. The ink isn't even dry on the rules yet. We don't know what the impact of that is going to be. Why the rush? Now, why was all this done? Number one, fraud. No agency has shown any systemic fraud in this process over the last 16 years that they've been looking at it. There's too many about there's too many amendments. Let me remind you, the Florida legislature has put three times the amendments on the ballot that the citizens have. Um, the integrity of, of the Constitution. Think about what the people have put in the ballot. Disclosure laws, limits on taxes, term limits, the Everglades trust fund, smaller class sizes, university governance system. This is all stuff that should be in the Constitution. Kara Gross with the ACLU of Florida says the ballot initiative process is already cumbersome and lawmakers are trying to make it all but impossible. Floridians' right to participate directly in our democracy is protected under Florida's Constitution. The legislature should be protecting Floridians' constitutional rights, not restricting them. There is no evidence-based justification for this bill, and it will greatly infringe on the public's ability to propose amendments to the Constitution that will improve the lives of everyday Floridians. Florida already has one of the most burdensome citizens' initiative processes in the country. Currently, in order for a citizen initiative to appear on the ballot, 8% or roughly 760,000 petitions need to be signed, submitted, and verified within a scant two-year period. Moreover, because of tight 
deadlines and current statutory requirements, groups need to hire signature petitioners, get signature gatherers, and this may cost millions. It then takes millions more to garner enough votes to support and meet the 60% threshold needed for a ballot initiative process. SB 1794 makes the process much more difficult and much more expensive, making it virtually impossible for anyone with the most wealthy special interest to be successful in the citizen initiative process. Senator Javier Jose Rodriguez says you might as well call this the Ballots for Billionaires bill because they're the only ones who be able to afford a citizen's initiative campaign if it passes. This effort, like the efforts in past years and is yet again one that makes it harder for citizens to amend the Constitution. And the Citizens Initiative process is supposed to be a check on this legislature when this legislature refuses to act. It, in my view, the, basically it makes it more expensive and it forces operations to move from grassroots to professional operations that are well-funded and sophisticated. And it relegates the ballot to those same special interest groups that are well-funded that influence this process. And for, for me, doing that flips on its head the entire purpose of the citizens' initiative process and effectively makes it yet another tool of the well-funded special interest. Supporters of the ballot bill were quiet at this meeting, and the lobbyists who supported did not speak. Senator David Simmons was about the only member of the Rules Committee who wholeheartedly endorsed the bill. We need to have integrity in this process, and there can be a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, not only corruption, but uh, abuse of the, uh, of the system. When you read the cases about uh, the use of the petition process across the United States, you find that the courts uh, became, for the last 20 to 25 years, uh, fully aware of the band of traveling individuals who would go from state to state to do petition drives, and in doing that, be able to abuse the system, bring in individuals who are from other states uh, to collect the petitions, and then be able to uh, truly distort the will of the people of a particular state. One thing is real clear. For those who say that there does not exist fraud in this process, they are flatly ignoring the facts. Several members of the Rules Committee who expressed concerns about the bill voted for it anyway after the sponsor promised there would be changes when it reaches the Senate floor. Now, lawmakers could have made those changes in the Rules Committee, but they did not. The clock is winding down on the 2020 session, so bills are flying through both chambers at a furious pace. The Rules Committee sent a long list of bills to the full Senate, including Senator Debbie Mayfield's bill allowing college athletes to cash in on their fame before they turn pro. The legislation... Uh, prevent schools from prohibiting a student from entering into a contract related to their name, image, or likeness. Further, it states that these contracts will not affect the student's scholarship eligibility or grant money. The legislation does not allow universities to schools or schools to compensate athletes, prospects, or, their, or other students. Uh, the grant or scholarship money will not count as compensation. The legislation allows the athletes to seek representation. The student athlete is not required to have an agent. However, if they do not, if they do seek an agent, that person must hold a valid license to act on an athletic agent to represent a collegiate athlete. At the start of the of the athlete's first and third year, the school school must offer a financial literacy class for them to participate in. The student athlete may not enter into a contract that violates provisions of the team contract. 
Um, and for example, if the team has an agreement with Nike, athletic wear of his official duties, the student athlete may not enter into an agreement with Adidas to wear their brand over Nike. The team must disclose each potential conflict with the athletic and their representation, uh, representative, and the student athlete must disclose any contracts they are a part of to the university. The Rules Committee also approved Senator Linda Stewart's weenie wagger bill, making it easier for cops to arrest people accused of indecent exposure. Under current law, the police have to actually see it before they can make an arrest. This uh, bill, uh, 1018, addresses the crime of indecent exposure, which occurs when an individual exposes sexual organs in a vulgar or indecent manner. The bill creates a misdemeanor exception, allowing a warrantless arrest if an officer has probable cause to believe an individual has committed an act of indecent exposure. This gives law enforcement the ability to act without delay to apprehend a suspect before they are reoffended. Right now, the law does not allow them to investigate. Uh, they have to see it for themselves. The bill also increases the penalty for repeat offender, offenders to third-degree felony. This will allow the crime to be meaningfully prosecuted when an individual shows a pattern of, pattern of this behavior. In Orange County, we have had nine separate cases related to one suspect who repeatedly drove into populated areas and exposed genitals. We want to stop this type of behavior in its tracks. This bill also specifies that the section does not apply to mothers breastfeeding an individual who is merely uh, naked at a clothing optional beach or an inmate in a correctional facility. The weenie wagger bill is now headed for the Senate floor. Meanwhile, a bill targeting sex offenders who victimize children is approved by the full House of Representatives. The bill is HB 333. The sponsor is Representative Tom Leake of Ormond Beach. On June the 6th, 2019, a jury of his peers convicted a man of three counts of lewd and lascivious exhibition on a minor. Lewd and lascivious conduct and showing obscene materials to a minor. The defendant showed his genitals to the child and first forced her to watch pornography with him. The victim was an eight-year-old little girl. The perpetrator was a 61-year-old man and a family friend of the victim. The state prosecuted and the defense vigorously defended for almost three years. The trial lasted three days. The defendant was convicted by a jury of his peers and sentenced to 15 years in prison. That eight-year-old little girl, her mom, her dad, and all of her family will have to live with the knowledge of what that trusted family friend did to that little girl for the rest of their lives. The man appealed, and the basis of his appeal was that the, the state had not proven that he was at least 18 years of age. The judge decided that the man could be released pending appeal. Now, members, imagine the horror of standing in Publix at a line to buy groceries and looking over at another line and seeing the man who had just been convicted of sexually abusing your little girl standing there because the judge released him. What this bill does, ladies and gentlemen, this bill expands the already existing list of crimes for which a conviction uh, prohibits a person from seeking bail pending appeal to include any offense requiring the registration as a sexual offender or a sexual predator if at the time of the offense the defendant was 18 or older and the victim was a minor. The bill passed the House by a vote of 115 to zero. Despite recent reports that many of the private schools receiving money through Florida's school voucher system discriminate against LGBTQ students and their parents, the House Appropriations Committee votes to expand the program and turn a blind eye to discrimination. 
Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith knew he could not do anything about the funding, so he offered an amendment instead that says there should be a study to figure out which schools are actually discriminating. What we're doing with this amendment is we are creating an OPAGA study specifically to look into uh, discrimination in student enrollment at voucher-funded schools, specifically as it relates to uh, students who are LGBTQ and also discrimination against students for different types of uh, protected hairstyles, including but not limited to braids, locks, or twists. We know that um, there have been cases of discrimination around some of these issues that have been reported, so we're just trying to find out more about that. The Orlando Sentinel discovered, um, after speaking to many voucher-funded schools, that at least 83 voucher-funded schools were confirmed to have written policies that said, students who say the words, I am gay or I am transgender, will be expelled. Uh, this is not happening at every school. But unfortunately, these types of documented cases of discrimination that we know is happening in at least 83 voucher-funded schools has unfortunately given the rest of the school choice movement a bad rap. And that's what we're trying to understand and address. Many of these voucher-funded schools actually have in writing, they say it, they broadcast it to the world in their policies. They say students whose parents are in same-sex relationships, that they are not compatible with an enrollment in their school. That's wrong if they are receiving taxpayer funds and participating in a taxpayer program, a government program. If folks believe that discrimination is not happening in these voucher-funded schools, then they should, know, they should have no problem approving a study that would prove that it doesn't exist. But in a moment that might be described as see no evil, the Budget Committee decided there is no need for a study. They also rejected a second amendment that would have required voucher schools to publish their admission standards so people can see for themselves if they discriminate. But kudos to Budget Chairman Travis Cummings, who shut down one of the Capitol's frequent gay bashers. Greg Pound is a gadfly lobbyist from Pinellas County whose chief function seems to be annoying lawmakers. But he went too far when he lumped pedophiles in with the LGBTQ community. Uh, Greg Pound, final public testimony card, Mr. Greg Pound, saving families. Could keep it to 30 seconds or less. We'd appreciate it, Mr. Pound. Thanks for your patience. Members, we're going to quickly go into debate after uh, Mr. Pound testifies. Thank you, Chair. Thank Number, you. I'll, I'll do my best. Just a real quick question on the alphabet there. The L is for lesbians, G is for gay, B is for bisexual, T, transgender, Q is queer, and then P would be pedophile. Now, let me ask you this. Where do these... Where do these people, where do these people get their children? Where are they getting these Mr. Children? Pound, uh, your, your, uh, your, your testimony is, is ended here on this item today. Thank you. Members, we're in debate. Excuse me, Chair, why? On what grounds? What grounds? Yes. What's coming out of your mouth? What came out of my mouth? Yeah, it's offensive. The LGBT is not offensive? Yeah. It's not morally offensive to you? No, it, the Sarges will, will uh, please you just show your engage. Story. Thank you. All right, we're in debate. Uh, uh. Applause is frowned on during committee meetings, but the audience was genuinely delighted when Pound was escorted from the podium by the sergeant at arms. 
Next up on Sunrise, we talk with Rich Templin of the Florida AFL-CIO, one of the most outspoken opponents of the drive to place more limits on citizen amendments to the state constitution. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. We all know that guy who says he knew Trump was going to win long before election night. Had he known about Predict It, he could have put his money where his mouth was and made a little extra cash in the process. Predict It is like the stock market for politics. You can buy and sell shares in future events and elections, both foreign and domestic. During the 2018 midterms, Predict It beat other national pollsters like Nate Silver in election night predictions, and it wasn't even close. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Sunrise listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Rich, Dr. Rich Templin, I should say, with the Florida AFL-CIO, who is one of the most, well, you've been around, what, 20 years now? Just about. So you must have seen just about everything now and what's happening now in the legislature doesn't surprise you a bit. Until tomorrow. Until tomorrow? What's tomorrow? Uh, just another day. <laughs> okay. Understood. I'm sorry. I'm not that, quite that sharp. I've been covering crap all day. <laughs> so, Rich, you were, you were very... Uh, forceful in your testimony about what's going on with the constitutional amendment process and what you see the legislature is trying to do. What's going on here? Well, the citizens initiative process, you know, has existed uh, for a long time uh, since uh, the 1968 uh, rewrite revision. of the rewrite of the Constitution. Uh, it's been uh, used since I think it was 1974. Uh, but in 2004, uh, a little-known group known as Acorn, uh, there in the the annals of of uh, uh, history, political history, uh, they succeeded in petitioning around the state to put a minimum wage increase on the ballot, and all hell broke loose. And all hell broke loose. That that increase was only one dollar, and it was indexed to inflation. Uh, so now Florida's minimum wage, you know, tends to be about three dollars and change higher than the than the federal minimum. Well, after that successful campaign, the amendment passed, um, the, the business community decided that the constitutional initiative was just too far out of their control to be allowed to live. Um, you know, the, the way it works now is they exert so much control over the legislative process that they spend a lot of time trying to find any avenue outside of that where policy could be made that impacts them in what they feel is in an adverse way. Uh, we see preemptions now. Uh, each and every year, and that rate is increasing, we're seeing dozens and dozens of bills that preempt local governments, telling local governments what you can't do. And those are almost always at the behest of, of the business lobby, uh, because it's easier for them to control a single legislature than it is 67 different county commissions and hundreds of different city commissions. Um, so they set about the work of kind of dismantling the citizens initiative. Now, the intellectually honesty, honest thing to do would be to put something on the ballot saying, do you want to get rid of, of this process? But of course, they're not going to do that because it won't work. People won't, you know, give up their rights wholesale fashion like that. 
So it's it, they've they've been on a on a campaign of death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, in two thousand four, uh, they shortened the time period of of a campaign to get something on the ballot, uh, and they uh, forced a fiscal impact statement where the legislature could put their thumb on the scale on the ballot, like telling people this is bad for the economy because or this it will is, cost X amount right, of this, dollars. This will cost too much. Whether money. they can prove that or not. Correct. Correct. Uh, in 2005, they they raised the threshold for passage of amendments to 60 percent. You know, it's funny. At first, they wanted it just to be on citizens initiative, not all the amendments they put on the ballot. But uh, but that that had to be uh, that had to be changed to get it passed. Uh, they shortened the lifespan of signatures. So uh, it was it when you signed uh, a petition, your signature was good for eight years. Uh, they shortened it to four. Uh, in 2005. And then they they um, also put in some different things about the inability for public records, uh, or public meeting notices to apply to meetings of the fiscal impact estimating conference so that people couldn't see where these fine, you know, fiscal impact statements were coming from. Uh, in, in 2007, they um, put a new petition revocation process in place. They put a 30-day requirement on verifying signatures. Uh, and they closed traditionally public-private spaces like, like parking lots at, at strip malls and shopping centers. Uh, they, they put a prohibition that you can't collect signatures there if the business owner says you can't. All under the guise of protecting the consumer. Right. From being harassed by these awful petition gatherers. Right. In yeah. reality, there had been no complaints about that. But of course, the business owners that own those shopping centers are the same business owners that make up the Florida Chamber of Commerce, who was spearheading all of this. Uh, then in uh, 2008, uh, they made additional uh, provisions. In 2011, they shortened that four years for the lifespan of a, of a signature down to two years. Um, and then last year. Uh, things were quiet for about eight years until guess what happened? Let's see. There was the medical marijuana amendment and there's the raise the minimum wage to exactly. 15 bucks. So, so the minimum wage uh, is back on the ballot or, or was nearing the ballot in, in last year. And uh, they put through probably the most draconian packages of restrictions that, that we've ever seen. Uh, they forced that through the legislative process. It's funny. Uh, the bill on the Senate side had died uh, in the in the appropriations committee and it was dead. Uh, but all of a sudden, with hours to spare uh, before the end of the legislative, legislative session, it was reborn, you know, a zombie bill. And it was back up and walking around and, and they passed it uh, with no debate, no discussion. It was just a party line vote. Uh, so now we get to this year, 2020. And it, it's as if any little thing they get, didn't get in the bill last year, they're now trying to squeeze through this year. And, and mind you, the ink is barely dry on the rulemaking, on the changes they made last year. Uh, much less do we have any, any idea whatsoever how it's going to impact anything. Uh, so, so now they want to change it again. They want to, uh, some of the things they want to do, uh, right now when you get 10% of your signatures, uh, the Supreme Court steps in to review the amendment. Which tells you basically if you should keep going on this amendment Correct. or if it's not going to stand up. Correct. And that's important because uh, funders, people who want to contribute to the campaign, what have you, they're going to wait until the Supreme Court weighs in. Um, and so they want to raise that on the House right now. It's at 50 percent uh, of your signatures in the Senate. It's 33 and a third percent. Uh, another thing they want to do uh, currently when you collect those petitions, you've got.
got to show that you have 8% from half of Florida's congressional districts. They want to raise that to 100% of our congressional districts, every single district. Um, they're also wanting the legislature to be able to do a staff analysis of the amendment to estimate the impact it will have. Um, now, that won't be on the ballot, but it will be available. And I guarantee you, so, and, and, and it's retroactive. They can apply this to the minimum wage amendment that is already on the ballot. And so you're going to have this staff analysis that says this is going to destroy the economy. Uh, you know, we're going to be in ruins. Uh, babies are going to be stolen out of their beds. And, and while that analysis won't be on the ballot, it will be the subject of the first commercial being run by the folks who are against raising the minimum wage. Right. Talking points for every politician who opposes exactly. it. Exactly. It, it's it's a major, major way for the legislature to, to put their thumb on the scale. And all to just keep control of the system. I mean, for years they've hated it because this is a mechanism to bypass the legislature. Absolutely. And they don't like that one bit. Right. And, and again, we're seeing this increase. And I, I, I'm going to keep going back to preemption because it's the same thing. Uh, they don't want citizens going around the legislature using the, the ballot. They don't want citizens going around the legislature using their local governments. Uh, so, what, you know, local governments were passing ordinances against uh, plastic straws or plastic bags because they don't want them in their community. They don't want them in their environment. Well, the legislature says, well, that's preempted. You can't do that anymore. Uh, wage theft is a big problem in Florida. We're one of the worst states for it. So local governments have set up wage recovery ordinances to help people get, get their back pay uh, returned to them when an employer unlawfully holds it. The legislature uh, has tried to preempt that. Um, uh, you know, so, so we see it across the board. Lo local governments tried to raise wa wages. That was the first big preemption. So year after year, and it's getting worse, like, like the, the, the pace is increasing in terms of the legislature trying to close off any avenue of making change in Florida that doesn't go directly through them. And your theory as to why they're doing this, just to serve the business community? Absolutely. Okay. First and foremost. And you, do you find any irony in the fact that they keep one of their biggest complaints is this has become a, a thing for special interests. You have to have money. You have to have organization. And they're the ones who made it that way. Right. I mean, back in you know, back in 2003, before this happened, a small group uh, could organize, you know, self-organize. They didn't need a lot of money because they had eight years to do it. And they could collect the signatures and they could go at a slow pace and they could build momentum. And use uh, volunteers to collect and, the and signatures. And use volunteers. Yeah. But as they made the period shorter and shorter and shorter, it's now acknowledged it is impossible to get the over 800,000 valid signatures you need to be on the ballot using just volunteers. You have to bring in these paid signature firms. So they claimed they were protecting us from making this a business and then set about to make it a business. And the other funny thing uh, that was pointed out in a committee a few weeks ago, this is the only business, the business of petition circulating, et cetera, that the legislature wants to regulate. They're, they're, they're deregulating business across the board in sweeping ways, but this one little area of, of business enterprise in Florida, they want to heavy, heavily regulate or put them out of business. Okay. You other, you're also working on the Sunshine Bill that has to do with presidential selections. Um, 
How is how is that a danger, do you think, being able to shield the, the names of people who apply for presidential jobs? Right. Right now, like many other processes in state government, our Constitution guarantees us the right of open records and open meetings. And it's a very special thing about Florida. Um, in the past, uh, when there is a search for uh, to replace a president of a state college or university, it, it's a real community affair. Uh, they there's a search firm that comes in and and they they collect applications. Those applications are available per, for people to review. People can give feedback to the board of trustees. Uh, the meetings where the trustees are deciding who to interview, who to bring in, those are all open to the public, and the public can weigh in and they can be a part of it. Faculty, staff, students, parents. Um, what they want to do now is they want to make that process secret until the final two or three candidates have been chosen by the board of trustees. That's problematic because these boards are political appointees purely. And they're not appointed because they're experts in universities. They're not appointed because they're academics. They're appointed because they made big campaign contributions to the governor. Or because they can make big or because they contributions can make, to the universities. Right. And, yeah. right. And so we now have these boards of governors that are basically business leaders and rich people um, who think they know everything. And if we take the sunshine law out of this process, there is no check on what they do whatsoever. Uh, the, the, the faculty, the staff, the students of these universities will have no say. Um, and, and that's really problematic because you're not going to get the top minds in academia running these uh, institutions or, or administrators with a proven record of running these institutions. You're going to get a lot of cronyism. You're going to get a lot of perception of corruption. And, and more importantly, the faculty especially will not be able to trust that new person who's been brought in to be president. And that's that could be very problematic on a whole range of issues for our universities and uh, state colleges. All right. And before we get accused of being Debbie Downers here, there is one good thing happening this year, isn't there? The state employees are, it looks like they're going to get a pay raise for the first time in a long right. time. Right. And, you know, you, you got to give it to the state employees. You got to give it to their union, AFSCME. Uh, they have been at this for many, many years. And in and, and a time and in a climate, uh, you know, it, it seemed much more likely five years ago that they could have gotten a raise. The Republican uh, caucus was much more moderate, much more friendly, uh, not only to state workers, but organized labor in general. Uh, but here at this moment, uh, through a lot of diligence, and a lot of hard work, uh, we're, we're getting closer and closer. I don't want to jinx anything. I'm, I'm knocking on wood here in the room. Um, but we're getting closer and closer to an across the board, uh, decent pay raise for our state workforce. And that's a great thing. Our guest today on the Sunrise Interview, Rich Templin, Dr. Rich Templin of the Florida AFL-CIO. Thanks Rick, for joining us. Yep, Rick, it's always great to talk to you and uh, always great to uh, to hear your voice. Keep, uh, folks, folks miss it on our broadcast sometimes. Well, keep up the good fight, Rich. Thank you, sir. Your calendar of events starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. That's when the House Commerce Committee and the House State Affairs Committee are meeting. The Senate Appropriations Committee meets at 9. They'll be hearing from a woman who survived the Auschwitz concentration camp and another woman who was born in a displaced persons camp in Austria after her mother survived the Holocaust. The House Public Integrity and Ethics Committee meets at 10 to resume its investigation of the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, whose former director is accused of pocketing millions of dollars that was intended for battered women. The Florida Supreme Court is scheduled to release its weekly opinions at 11. The Northwest Florida Water Management District Governing Board meets at 1 in Havana. No, not that Havana. It's the one in Gadsden County. The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Hemp Advisory Committee is holding a conference call at 4. 
and it's time once again for the amazing adventures of Florida Man, the all-female version. A Florida woman is lucky to be alive after being shot in the head. 42-year-old Shakina Jefferson was headed for the store when bullets began flying near her home in Miami. Doctors told her she'd been grazed by a bullet. They gave her a Band-Aid and sent her home. But the pain didn't go away, so three days later she went to a different hospital where doctors did an x-ray and found a bullet in her skull. And a Florida woman is arrested on a murder charge because her boyfriend died after being zipped into a suitcase and left inside for hours. 42-year-old Sarah Boone of Winter Park says they were drinking and decided to play hide-and-seek. Boone claims she passed out and when she woke up the next morning, he was dead. Detectives say they found videos on her phone where the boyfriend was begging to be released from the suitcase because he couldn't breathe. She apparently laughed and told him, that's what I feel like when you cheat on me. And that's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. 